sexual purity. It's a controversial topic that's become a hotly debated subject here in the 21st century church. While there are many conservative Christians who are faithfully defending the biblical boundaries of sexual purity, there are also those who are completely dedicated to accomplishing their own desired goal, which is to promote and normalize aberrant sexuality within the mainstream evangelical church. And while those who attempt to normalize sexual immorality within the church try to defend their position by appealing to the love of the Lord, what they're failing to realize is that the word of the Lord is perfectly clear about the standard of sexual purity, which is explicitly spelled out all throughout the scriptures. As a matter of fact, it's here in our text today where we find Paul. He's helping his audience to understand what the Bible says about the scriptural standard of sexual purity. And uh, as we study the scriptures before us this morning, uh, we're going to begin to see, first of all, that sexual purity involves purposeful abstinence. Secondly, we'll learn that sexual purity includes careful adherence. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that sexual purity incorporates spiritual acceptance. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here we find Paul, he's encouraging the Christians in Thessalonica to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, as you make your way to the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, I should take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that Paul was praying for the original recipients of this epistle so that their hearts might be established, blameless in holiness, and that this would continue until the second coming of Christ. And not only that, but he also prayed for them to increase and abound in the agape love of the Lord. And just to be clear about the sort of love that he was referring to, Paul then goes on to challenge them about the sin of sexual immorality. And one reason why is probably because they were probably those back in this this day and age who were arguing that, you know, sex is based on love. And so how can sex be wrong if, if, if it feels so right and these sorts of things? And the same thing is happening here in the world today. People want to talk about love and sex and and associate the two things together. But the question we have to ask ourselves is this, are we actually walking in the agape love of the Lord, not just the love that we, we call eros or erotic love? Are we actually walking in the agape love of the Lord as we interact with one another? And with this question in mind, I'm going to pick up our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you would look with me there, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Here Paul declares, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, 
He who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Now here in our text today, we find Paul. He's continuing to define the path of perfection. That's what we looked at last week. We considered the path of perfection, and and now he's going on to help us to understand what the path of perfection actually looks like. And so he defines the path of perfection here by helping the new believers there in Thessalonica to understand how we ought to walk and how we ought to please the Lord. Now, that word ought, which is found there in verse 1, it's translated from a Greek word, which was used of that which is right and proper. There's a way we ought to walk. There's a way that's right. There's a way that's proper as we live our lives. The same word translated ought is also used in reference to the duty we all have to live in a way that's acceptable and biblically correct. And in a a Christian context, believers have been called to walk in such a way that's actually pleasing to the Lord. We ought to live our life in a way that pleases our God. With this as the goal, we must not fail to see the connection then between the way believers ought to live and the moral law of the Lord. In order to make this connection, let's back up and take another look at the beginning of this chapter. Look with me again at verse 1. Here Paul declares, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping the original recipients of this epistle to see the connection between the commandments of Christ Jesus and the moral law that helps us to understand how we ought to live. The commandments of Christ help us to know how we should live. Now, you know, as we consider this word commandments, it'll help you to know that that word commandments found in verse 2, it's translated from a Greek word, which in this context is used in reference to the Christian doctrines that help us to explicitly identify the moral law of the Lord. Now, when it comes to the topic of the moral law, you might be interested to know that every culture throughout the course of human history has embraced and enforced some some form of the universal laws of morality. And not only that, but listen, every religious system throughout human history has attempted to identify the universal moral law that our creator has written upon our hearts. As a matter of fact, if you you look at all the different various religious writings on the planet today, uh, you'll find some form of the Ten Commandments, some, some version of what is very close to the Ten Commandments. And and in light of this, we see that everyone has received the same moral law written upon our hearts by our Creator. And it's for this reason that believers and unbelievers alike attempt to uh, identify and keep the same laws of morality. Uh, I like the way that Paul put it in Romans chapter 2. It's there where he declares... For when Gentiles who do not have the law, or in other words, the, the Gentiles who don't have the Ten Commandments, you know, uh, they, they don't have the law, but by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, <clears throat> and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them." Now from this we can see here that the moral law of the Lord was not only revealed in the scriptures, for example, like in the Ten Commandments, 
But the Lord has also written his moral law upon the hearts of every single person. That's what Paul says, that uh, through their works, these, uh, these Gentiles who don't have the Bible still show that the, the, the law has been written upon their hearts. Paul also here references the guilty conscience of man. You know that every time we feel guilty about something that we've done, we reveal that the law has been written, has been written upon our hearts. Our guilty conscience bears witness of the fact that we know the moral law of the Lord. <clears throat> At the same time, it's also important for us to realize that the person who continues to suppress this truth in their unrighteous desires, well, they're simultaneously searing their conscience as with a hot iron. Or in other words, they're, they're, they're building up a scab you know, or, or you know, a callus over their hearts as they continue to ignore the law of the Lord so that they can continue doing the things that they would rather do. I like the way that Paul explains this in Romans chapter 1. It's there where he assures us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest where? In them, for God has shown it to them. Whether you're someone living in a major city that has a thousand churches or, or, or you're uh, you know, living on a deserted island all by yourself, the law of the Lord is known to every person because it's been manifest within us. Sadly, the moral law of the Lord ends up being suppressed in the minds of those who want to embrace their ungodly desires. So the first time you do something that you know is wrong and it feels you get that guilty feeling and you suppress that and you do it again, well, the next time you do it, you don't feel as guilty. And if you do it again and again and again and again, well, without, you know, without too much time, there's no guilty feelings at all, you know, because you have created a callous over your conscience. As a result, these people begin to follow after their depraved desires, which always include the sins of sexual immorality. And, and this was most certainly true of the unbelievers living there in Thessalonica. As a matter of fact, the city of Thessalonica it not only included a temple that was built for Hercules, but it also had a temple which was initially dedicated to Aphrodite. And just to be clear, Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of sexual love. And, and there was a similar temple there in Corinth. And much like the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth, uh, there's reason for us to believe that the temple of Aphrodite there in Thessalonica also included these sacred brothels where priests would collect money from the worshipers of Aphrodite as they came to take part in the sexual services offered by temple prostitutes. That's right, the, the, the worship services there at the temple of Aphrodite would, would also include sexual immorality. And with that being the case, Paul probably felt the need to encourage them to realize that the worship of the true and living God is not the same as the worship of Aphrodite. They had grown up in this culture where, you know, the worship of their gods included sexual morality, and Paul wants to say, no more. This ain't that religion. And so he probably felt the need to encourage them regarding sexual purity. Proof of my point is found here in verse 3. Here Paul tells us this, he says, for this is the will of God, 
your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Here in this verse, we find Paul helping the Christians there in Thessalonica to understand that the sin of sexual immorality is actually in conflict with the will of God. If you want to know what God's will is for your life, well, here's part of it right here. That we abstain from sexual immorality. That is God's will for every single one of us. And just to be clear about this, it'll help you to know that the phrase sexual immorality is actually translated from one Greek word. It's the Greek word pornea, which comes from the Greek word porne. Porne, well, that's the basis for our English word pornography and pornographic. And so you better believe that we're being called to abstain from pornography and, and, and movies that include pornography and these sorts of things. Yeah, this should not be a part of our lives. We should abstain from every form of sexual immorality, including pornography. At the same time, the Greek word which is rendered sexual immorality, uh, well, the, the, the base word or the root word was used in reference to prostitutes. As a matter of fact, the root word porne was the Greek word which was used of the prostitutes who served there at the temple of Aphrodite. Not only that, but the same word was also used of any woman indulging in unlawful sexual intercourse, whether for gain or just for lust. The verb form of this same word was used of those who engage in the unlawful sexual intercourse of premarital fornication. And then the derivative that we find here in our text today, well, it's used in the broadest of terms, which includes adultery, fornication, incest, homosexuality, lesbianism, pedophilia, and zoophilia. Now, as we consider the broad meaning of the term that we find here in our text today, uh, we do well to take another look here at verse 3, because it's here where Paul declares, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Now, as we take another look at this verse, it'll help us to know that the word sanctification here, it actually speaks of the consecration of purification. And as we consider the meaning of this word in its context, we can see here that it's God's will for us to be consecrated and purified for his holy purposes. Therefore, the Christian has been called to abstain from sexual immorality so that we can actually be used by God in the way that we ought to be used. With this as the goal, Paul encouraged every Christian to abstain, or in other words, to fully refrain from every form of sexual immorality. What this means then is that sexual purity, this involves a purposeful abstinence from everything, every sort of sexual relationship which is beyond the boundaries of what we would call a biblical marriage. Everything that is beyond the boundaries of a biblically-based marriage is sexual immorality. And in order to understand the reason for why uh, this is so important to understand, we should consider something that Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth. And so if you would hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, as you make your way to the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians, I just want to take a moment to address some of the arguments of those who insist that the Bible is just far too antiquated to be useful here in this modern world. 
It's not uncommon for us to come across those who insist that the Bible is so old, it was written so long ago that it's irrelevant. And, and, and this typically comes in the form of something like this. It's the 21st century. Therefore, we don't really need this old book to tell us how to live here in this modern age. You know, while this argument has convinced many uh, to throw caution to the wind and embrace every thing that the Bible says is sexual immorality. Listen, I'm here to tell you that if it was true in the first century, it's still true in the 21st century. Truth is timeless. And if the truth of God's word is written by the mind of an infinite creator, well, then an infinite creator would only give us a moral standard, which is timeless. And so these are timeless truths that don't you know ever go out of, of uh, that there's not an expiration date on the Bible, so to speak. Now, listen, if this is something that you've slipped into, if you've heard this, it's the 21st century, and so therefore, you know, if you've fallen for this kind of argument, then it'll help you to remember that the Bible is the living word of our Creator, and therefore, uh, we have to recognize that His moral law is timeless, no matter whether society likes this or not. And with all this being the case, I want to consider the reason for why sexual immorality is still a sin in the 21st century, just as it was in the 1st century. Paul puts it plainly here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 15, here Paul asks, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Christian, listen, those who engage in any form of sexual immorality they're simultaneously sinning against their own body. It's so important to grasp this. And that was true back in the first century, and it's true here in the 21st century. Those who engage in sexual immorality sin against their own body. And, and there's many different ways that this is manifest. You know, one way you know, is that every time a person engages in sexual sin, you know, what they're doing is they are searing their conscience. They're, they're creating a callous you know, over their consciousness. They're, 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 they're actually, you know, creating the conditions by which they don't feel bad about sexual sin at all. And, and so there's damage in that sense. But, but listen, this also includes the unseen damage uh, that's, that could be caused by, you know, those who are exposed to STDs. You know, the person who engages in sexual immorality is possibly at some point going to come across an STD, maybe contracting HIV, resulting in AIDS, and, and, and all of this can most certainly affect the person's lifespan. Uh, furthermore, many adulterers have been physically attacked after their affair, uh, affair was uh, exposed. Some people have even been murdered by a jilted spouse who was moved to commit a crime of passion. And the scriptures certainly speak to that issue as well. The person who engages in sexual immorality is sinning against themselves. And listen, the sexually immoral person is not only sinning against their own bodies, but the Christian who is sexually immoral is also defiling the temple of God. 
I want to consider how Paul puts it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And so if you would look with me there, beginning at verse 19. Here he asks, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Christian, listen, the born-again believer who engages in the sin of sexual immorality is not only sinning against their own bodies, but they're simultaneously defiling the temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember, it's at the moment of our conversion to Christ when the Holy Spirit begins to dwell within the born-again believer. It's at that point in time when we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And it's also at that point in time when we no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to the Lord who lives within us. Therefore, the believer who engages in the sin of sexual immorality is simultaneously turning the temple of the Holy Spirit into a brothel, much like the temple of Aphrodite. Christian, do you think that we're supposed to be like the temple of Aphrodite? Where sexual immorality is tied together with the worship of of Aphrodite? Is that what God wants for us? Of course not. That being the case, we ought to protect our sexual purity by becoming believers who practice purposeful abstinence. And while it's true that sexual purity involves purposeful abstinence, well, it's also true that sexual purity also includes careful adherence. And to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here we find Paul, he's presenting us with the, prop, the, the proper parameters which help us to practice sexual purity. And with that, I want to back up here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to verse 3. It's here where Paul declares, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. Okay, so uh, according to Paul here, those who want to abstain from sexual immorality, well, they must learn how to possess their own vessel, or in other words, their own body. We must learn how to possess or control our own bodies in sanctification and honor. In other words, every Christian should learn how to control themselves in a way that is holy, in a way that is honorable, in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And knowing that this is easier said than done, I encourage you to remember that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. And so the Christian who comes along and says, I just couldn't control myself. It was just so passionate, I just couldn't control myself. Well, then you were in the flesh. Because those who walk in the power of the Holy Spirit have self-control. And so we should walk in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we receive the power we need to control our sexual appetites. We should also notice the contrast that Paul presented uh, here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's uh, there in verses 4 and 5 where he again declares, Each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust 
like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, uh, the Christian who wants to abstain from sexual immorality, well, they should not only walk in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can have self-control, but we should also stop following in the footsteps of the unbelievers who are pursuing the passion of lust that is leading them on. You know, the, the, these Gentiles who had come to faith in Jesus Christ were still being influenced by the Gentiles who didn't yet know God. And he's saying, hey, don't, don't follow after the Gentiles who don't know God. Don't, don't look to them as your standard. Don't look to society as the standard for how we ought to conduct ourselves. Because, you know, the, those who do not know God are still pursuing the passion of their lust. That word lust, which is found there in verse 5, well, it's translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to a longing or a desire for that which is forbidden. And in this context, Paul was referring to the longing and the desire for forbidden affection. That's right, the, the passion of lust is a desire for forbidden affection. To sum this up with simplicity, and the Lord has made it perfectly clear that sexual purity can only be achieved within the context of the marital covenant. And just to be clear, the marital covenant happens when a biological man enters into a marital covenant with a biological woman. And in this context, this couple is free to enjoy the natural affection that occurs through the sexual relationship that God designed. Any other form of sexual connection, well, this crosses over the proper boundaries of sexual purity. Anything that is beyond the, the boundaries of a biological woman married to a biological man, anything beyond those boundaries is sexually immoral. And it's for this reason that Paul warned every Christian to abstain from these sorts of immoral relationships. To explain what I'm saying here, let's take a closer look at the warning that Paul presents here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Notice with me there at verse 6. Here, Paul declares, no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this, in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. Now this phrase, take advantage of, it's translated from a Greek word which speaks of a person who steps over a boundary or oversteps a proper limit. And in the context of these verses, again, we're talking about sexual immorality. Well, Paul is clearly comparing those who pursue a forbidden lust to those who step over a biblical boundary as they overstep the proper limits that we ought to maintain as we set out to abstain from sexual immorality. We should also notice the word defraud there found in verse 6. That word defraud was translated from another Greek word, uh, which speaks of those who take advantage of another by overreaching the proper boundaries. Defrauding someone is overreaching the proper biblical boundaries. And as we consider both of these words, and in light of the context, Paul's clearly informing his audience here that every act of sexual immorality is committed by those who overstep and or overreach the biblical boundaries of sexual purity. You know, the biblical marriage, you have a biological man married to a biological woman, and in that context, you have a sexually pure relationship. Everything beyond those boundaries is overstepping and overreaching. And therefore, it's something that we ought to avoid. 
We should also notice the warning that Paul goes on to present here in verse 6. Here he, Again, he, he declares, no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. Now that word avenger, it shouldn't be confused with all of the progressively getting worse movies that people love to go and watch about, you know, Avengers and, you know, superheroes and these sorts of things. Now, this, this word Avenger is translated from a Greek word which can actually be rendered Punisher. And we're not talking about that Punisher, you know, the, the Punisher where everybody, all the conservative guys like to put the sticker on their trucks and guns and these sorts of things. We're not talking about that Punisher. We're talking about Jesus, the Punisher. According to Paul, the Lord has promised to punish every person who crosses over these biblical boundaries of sexual purity. That being the case, we'd all do well to become Christians who are carefully adhering to the biblical instructions that lead us to abstain from every form of sexual immorality. And with this as our goal, I want to consider the warning that the Lord Jesus presented to the church in Thyatira. If you would hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians and let's turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. As you make your way to the second chapter of Revelation, I just want to take a moment to point out that sexual immorality is actually becoming more and more acceptable in many churches. This includes the sin of premarital cohabitation, which is no problem in many churches. In many churches, you know, you'll find leaders where you know, they, they've got no issues with people who are living together, not married yet, you know, but they're planning on it, so it's okay, right? Chapter and verse, please. Where does it say that in the Bible? You know, I'm, I'm ready to line up on anything that the Bible says, so just show me. Where, where does it say that premarital cohabitation is a good thing? I can most certainly show you verses where it says it's a no-no, but according to some leaders in various churches, you know, this is okay now. Not only that, but there are churches also uh, where uh, adultery is okay, homosexuality is okay, lesbianism is okay, and these sorts of things. There are churches where same-sex marriage is now embraced, even encouraged. You know, there are many who will make the argument that, well, they're, they're created in God's image just like everybody else, so therefore... Listen, we've all been created in God's image. Does that justify my sinful desires? Absolutely not, because we live in a fallen world. We're, you know, living with the curse of Adam. And so just because we were created in the image of God, and just because we are image bearers of God, that doesn't mean that everything I desire and everything I do is automatically A-OK. Be careful with these arguments. And yet, there are churches where those who are openly engaging in all manner of sexual sin are being ordained and allowed to teach from pulpits. And as we consider the way that sexual immorality is becoming more and more acceptable in many, many Christian circles, it's important for us to realize that the biblical standard of sexual purity has not changed. The only thing that's changed is the culture in many churches. 
knowing that the moral law of the Lord has remained the same throughout all of time, well, it only stands to reason that the churches that are now embracing the sin of sexual immorality, they're actually being influenced by the lies of the prophetess Jezebel, who is currently seducing the servants of our Savior. And to prove my point, let's consider the warning that the Lord Jesus presents here to the church in Thyatira. If you would, let's turn our attention to Revelation chapter 2. I want to begin reading at verse 18, where Jesus declares, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's rebuking the leaders there at the church in Thyatira. And the reason why was because they were permitting a false prophetess named Jezebel to come in and seduce the servants of our Savior. The leaders were allowing this, and according to the Lord, they were allowing this lady to come in and convince the Christians there in Thyatira uh, that they had some sort of liberty, some liberty to continue committing the sin of sexual immorality. And so were they serving the Lord? Yes. Were they engaging in works and, and love and service and faith and patience and all these sorts? Yes, and, and the Lord says, hey, you're doing, you're doing some good stuff here, but you're allowing this, and you shouldn't be. And the Lord warns them here that he's preparing to cast them into a sickbed unless they repent, that they're going to suffer tribulation unless they repent, that their children are going to suffer as a result of this unless they repent. And in light of this warning, there should be no doubt that the Lord is serious about the sin of sexual immorality. The Lord isn't treating this as fun and games. This is serious business to the Lord. And one reason why is because those who engage in sexual immorality are sinning against their own bodies. And the the Christian who engages in sexual immorality is defiling the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Christian who engages in sexual immorality is overstepping and overreaching the biblical boundaries of sexual purity. And those who engage in sexual immorality are failing to walk according to the will of God. And knowing that the Lord is the punisher of those who engage in sexual immorality, we'd all do well to carefully adhere to the instructions that we find clearly spelled out in the word of God. Now this brings us to our final point, because listen, sexual purity not only involves purposeful abstinence and a careful adherence to the instructions of God's word, But sexual purity also incorporates spiritual acceptance. And in order to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's here in our text today where we find Paul. He's encouraging every believer to start listening to the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, if you would look with me again, beginning at verse 7. Here Paul declares, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. 
Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's presenting us with a contrast between those who are unclean and those who are holy. Just to be clear, the word uncleanness found there in verse 7, well, it's translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to the impurity of lustful, luxurious, and prodigal living. In contrast to this, we see the word holiness. That word is translated from a Greek word which refers to the consecration that results in the purification of those who trust in Jesus. And while our carnal cravings continue to drive us back to the sexual desires that are still found within our fallen flesh, the Christian has been called to continue on the path of perfection by maintaining our sexual purity. This was precisely the point that Paul was making back in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's beginning back at verse 3 where he says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. As we take another look at these verses... You might be interested to know that the Greek word, which is rendered sanctification there in verses 3 and 4, that's the same Greek word that's translated holiness here in verse 7. And as we consider all of these verses together, we can see here that the Lord is calling every Christian to live a life of holiness because this is his will for us. We've been called to be sanctified, set apart, consecrated, and purified for his holy purposes. With that, it's important for us to realize that those who have another opinion about this, well, according to Paul, they're actually disagreeing with God. As a matter of fact, look with me again there at verse 8. Here again, Paul declares, Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. In other words, those who try to convince us that the biblical boundaries of sexual purity are too strict, well, they're actually rejecting God. And and yeah, Paul was the man delivering the mail here, but the information came from God. So Paul's saying, look, if you reject what I'm telling you here, you're not rejecting my opinion, you're rejecting God's point of view. Those who attempt to normalize sexual immorality in the 21st century church They're not rejecting Pastor Bungie. They're rejecting God's will. Listen, before I came to Christ, I had a completely different uh, set of opinions about sex and sexual purity and immorality and these sorts of things. I had a completely different point of view when it came to this topic. Then I came to Christ, and, and then I started reading the Bible, and then I started seeing what it said, and... And I realized, I'm an idiot. I don't know what's right or wrong. Therefore, I I better see what the Bible says and then align my opinion up to the Scriptures so that I can walk in truth. It's God's will for us to abstain from sexual immorality according to His holiness. Not only that, but the Lord has also called the leaders of every church to banish the believers who refuse to repent of their sexual immoralities. This was precisely the point that Paul was making in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
It's there where he declares, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Wow. Wow. As we consider these instructions, there should be no doubt in our minds that the believer who fails to maintain their sexual purity are not only rejecting the will of God, but if they continue pursuing their own forbidden affections, then they're also inviting the correction of their leaders who have been instructed to engage in church discipline by banishing the believer who will not repent of their sexual immorality. And with that being the case, I encourage every Christian, abstain from sexual immorality. This is God's will for us. And to the degree that he's ready to cast the leaven out of the church. And by leaven, what I mean to say is the believer who continues to live in sexual sin is bringing this leaven of sin into the church. And Paul says that a little leaven will end up leavening the whole lump. The whole church is going to be affected by this. That's for this reason that leaders in the church have been called to banish believers who will not repent of sexual immorality. With this, it's important for us to maintain our sexual purity by simply accepting everything that the Holy Spirit has revealed about the sin of sexual immorality. And with this as the goal, I want to consider the encouragement that Paul presented to the church in Colossae. So if you would, let's turn in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. As you make your way to the third chapter of Colossians, I want to take a moment to address the arguments of those who uh, attempt to twist the scriptures as they try to normalize sexual immorality in the church. You might not know this, but there are those who insist that God didn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for the sin of sexual immorality. They try to convince us that it wasn't because of homosexuality and these sorts of things. And they go on to explain that God destroyed those cities because, you know, the people there tried to rape the angels. And so that, that was, the, according to them, that's the sin that, that God decided to punish these cities over. And what these people fail to realize is that the angels were already on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the reason why is because God had already determined to destroy both of those cities for their exceedingly wicked sins. That's, that's the way it's described in the scriptures, that they were engaging in exceedingly wicked sins when these two angels showed up to pull Lot out of the city. The, uh, the Lord had already dis- determined to destroy the city before they tried to rape the angels. So the argument that was well, because they tried to rape the angels uh, just doesn't fly. The timeline does not work out. Don't be fooled by those who are attempting to dismiss the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a reason why sodomy is called sodomy. And it traces all the way back to Sodom. So what was happening in Sodom? Sodomy. And that's the reason God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. 
There are also those who attempt to dismiss every verse in the Bible that refers to the sin of homosexuality. For example, Paul told the Christians in Corinth that fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, and sodomites will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then, you know, those who want to normalize sexual immorality in the church, they try to convince us that the scholars got it all wrong. For years and years and years and years, the scholars got the translation wrong. They accidentally or, or, or purposefully rendered the original Greeks, Greek words to homosexual and, and sodomite. But it doesn't really mean that. Listen, as we take a closer look at the words that Paul actually used, there will be no doubt in our minds that those who are using the Bible as a basis for normalizing these sorts of sexual sins, they're just twisting the scriptures. And they're playing semantical games, trying to say, oh, the original Greek it meant something else entirely and... No, it didn't. The scholars didn't get it wrong. They're just rejecting the clear instructions that were given by inspiration of God. That being the case, listen, those who want to maintain sexual purity in their own lives, we should learn to simply accept the spiritual instructions that we find in the scriptures. And with this as the goal, let's consider the encouragement that Paul presented here in Colossians chapter 3. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1, here Paul declares, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Here in these verses, we find Paul helping his audience to understand that the Christian has been called to crucify the depraved desires that we're still struggling with. We've been called to crucify, we've been called to put to death the members that we still have on the earth. And just to be clear, Paul goes on to list the members that we ought to be putting to death. And the, at the very tippy top of the list there in verse 5, what do we see? Fornication. First, first word on the list. Fornication. We are to put to death, we are to crucify any desire for fornication. And I'll, I'll remind you here that the Greek word that's rendered fornication, it refers to the broad spectrum of sexual immorality, which includes premarital sex, it includes adultery, it includes incest, homosexuality, lesbianism, pedophilia, and zoophilia. So when you see that word fornication, it covers all of that. We've been called to put to death, crucify, any desire that would lead us towards one of those uh, you know, forms of sexual immorality. And, and to put it plainly, you know, Paul sums it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse, verse 18, where he says, flee sexual immorality. He doesn't say run to it. He doesn't say, you know, entertain it. He doesn't say, you know, it's okay. He doesn't say live with it. He doesn't say, you know, watch movies that, that promote it. He doesn't say listen to songs about it. 
He certainly doesn't say read Christian romance novels that encourage it. He says, flee from it. Run away from it as fast as you can. With all this in mind, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I fleeing sexual immorality? Or am I rejecting the will of God by pursuing the evil desires of my fallen flesh? Are we maintaining our sexual purity by abstaining from every form of sexual immorality? Or are we attempting to explain away the scriptures so that we can continue to pursue the sinful pleasures of sexual sin? With these questions in mind, I encourage every Christian that it's time for us to reject the social norms of this society. Consider the social norms of Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody was on board. Everybody was on the same broad road leading to destruction until the day that fire and brimstone rained from the heavens. And it's sad that we're headed in the same direction. There are societal norms that that people want to impose on the church as they attempt to make aberrant sexuality a normal normal and accepted feature of modern-day Christianity. And there are Christians who are just embracing it so that they can appear to be loving so that they can be, appear to be open-minded and accepting. And the scriptures tell us to flee from it and to abstain from it. Societal, societal norms should not be our standard. Instead, we should look to the scriptures for the standard of what it means to be sexually pure. Let's maintain our sexual purity by simply accepting the spiritual instructions that we find in the word of God. And as we begin to wrap up this study, I encourage you to remember that sexual purity involves the purposeful abstinence that takes place when we abstain from every form of sexual immorality. Sexual purity also includes a careful adherence to the instructions that we find in the word of God. And finally, sexual purity incorporates a spiritual acceptance that helps us to place the word of God above our own personal opinion so that we begin to align our personal opinions to the truth of God's word. And and listen, if your opinion about sexual purity fails to line up with the scriptures, guess who's wrong? It's not God. And if your opinion about sexual purity is different from the scriptures that I've presented to you today, listen, your problem is not with me. Your problem is with the word of God and the mind of God. God is the one who actually created the sexual relationship. I'm going to guess that he knows better about it than we do. Therefore, we do well to incorporate a spiritual acceptance of God's point of view, so that our opinion lines up with his. Finally, I encourage every Christian to remember that we've not only been called to maintain our sexual purity, but we've also been called to preach the gospel of grace so that sinners of every stripe might be saved. Listen, the Lord hasn't called us to go out and look down our nose 
at unbelievers who are still engaging in the sin of sexual morality. They don't need that. Look, they know they're guilty. That's why they work so hard to try to convince us to not think that way. They know they're guilty. How do I know that? The law of God was written on their hearts. So they don't need us to go out and try to convince them that they're wrong. We just need to go out and show them how to get right with God. Let's present them with the good news that those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are cleansed from the stain of sin. And and knowing how many people there are in the world today who are looking for transformation... Listen, the the Lord is the one who actually can transform their lives. But not towards degradation, but towards purification. God is able to transform the lives of those who walk by faith with him according to his holy word. And with this message of hope, let's go out and proclaim the good news, the gospel of grace. That sinners of every stripe can be saved. Please trust me when I tell you that the Lord Jesus wants to save those who are currently living for the lusts of their flesh. And so regardless of the specific type of sexual sin they're engaging in, I encourage you to remember that God so loves the world. It doesn't say God so loves the world, well, except for those people, you know. God so loves the world, well, except for those committing that sexual sin, you know. No, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that Jesus could receive the punishment that we all deserve. And now that he's offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins, those who will believe in him have embraced everlasting life. Remember, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Therefore, rather than going out and condemning those who are still engaging in sexual immorality, let's take the time to share with them the agape love of the Lord by leading them to Jesus. And as we lead them to Jesus, let's encourage them to repent of their sexual immoralities so that they might receive the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And as they trust in Jesus Christ and receive the Holy Spirit of God, the Lord will help them to embrace the scriptural standard of sexual purity. Let's pray.